You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representer, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend Christopher Butler. What's going on, Pastor Chris? Oh, everything, everything. How are you doing? I can't complain, man. I mean, well, I can't complain actually. Let me let me let me not <laughs> be so quick on these pleasantries. Um, as you know, we're both you know Chicago Bears fans. Uh, and yesterday wasn't or, you know, Sunday wasn't such a good day for the Bears. In fact, we had both expressed concern about push, pushing Justin Fields out there too early. So he ends up getting his first start. And if I'm correct, I think he got sacked eight times. Yes. Um, I just had a friend send me something. No. I don't know if it was real or not, but it said he had like 7.8 seconds to, to throw the ball uh, uh, in the pocket every every play. Um, just really disappointing. And I have a friend who shall remain nameless, uh, but he has a a serious bias towards offensive linemen. Um, and Mm -hmm. he tried to tell me that this was partially Justin Fields fault. Um, that friendship will end soon, (laughs) but I just want to get your, I just want to get your perspective on, uh, the bears, Justin Fields and and what y'all are going to do to correct this. Man, I don't know, uh, what can be done to correct this. I was, uh, it hurt, man, to watch the game like a like a good Bears fan. I did watch. I went through the pain uh, with my team, but it was it was not good. And I don't know, like I I don't want to get too crazy with it because we're on the podcast. It's going to be recorded forever. But I'm in like camp. Everybody's uh, head is under review. Like everybody, it's it is it is not good. Whoa, so you, you you taking it there. You're like, everybody can go because we got to get this right. Is that what I'm hearing? Got to get it right. And, you know, this this coach that we have that everybody loves his personality uh, has been with us a while now. And every year it's like, okay, I got it this time. And it has not been right. Like, not even one time. It has just not been right. Yeah, there, there's some trouble over uh, uh, in Chicago that needs to get figured out. We're not going to talk about uh, college football today for reasons that uh, I'm not going to disclose right now. So let's just get ready to talk about what we came here to talk about, uh, which is the gospel, which is faith and politics. So as usual, Ann Cam, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. If you don't mind, I'd like to start off with some scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 19 says, And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Again, that's Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 19. Well, anyone who's been watching what's happening on the border with Haitian immigrants knows that we need smart comprehensive immigration reform as soon as possible. 
But it doesn't seem like we can get there, in my opinion, because too many politicians in D.C. are primarily worried about the next election rather than solving this humanitarian crisis. We don't seem to be getting any closer to it because too many politicians treat immigration as an opportunity to talk recklessly on the campaign trail in order to score points with their respective bases. Few issues in the United States are treated with the, with this level of intellectual dishonesty across the board. Uh, few issues, again, in my opinion, are treated as irresponsibly and haphazardly as immigration. It's hard to think of another pressing issue where the American public is fed so much pie in the sky or alternatively served so much red meat in politics. Republicans, namely former uh, President Trump, use immigration as a scare tactic, so much so that many conservative voters see immigration as the number one threat to our country. You'll recall that President Trump called Mexican immigrants drug dealers, criminals and rapists and said there might be some good ones, too, during his campaign. Democrats, on the other hand, sell more dreams than a philandering playboy in a nightclub on payday, setting unrealistic expectations by romanticizing open borders and large inflows of undocumented immigrants as if they could really pursue those things without consequence. And let me give you an example of that if, if you don't recall what I'm talking about. For instance, um, former presidential candidate Julian uh, Castro promised to decriminalize unauthorized border crossings, provide free health care to undocumented immigrants, and tear down existing sections of border barriers. What he was trying to do, in, in, in my estimation, is he was seeking to prove his progressive activist bona fides by pushing the 2016 Democratic presidential primary to the left on immigration and attacking Biden for Obama era immigration policies. But there's something I want you to note, Chris. There's something I want the audience to keep in mind. This happened after Castro, who at the time was the mayor of San Antonio. This happened after he gave a wholehearted endorsement of Obama's border and immigration policies in front of Congress in 2013. You guys don't have to believe me. It's all on record. When addressing uh, border security in a congressional hearing in 2013, he endorsed more boots on the ground. And his endorsement also included, check this out, fencing along the border. Not a wall, I guess, but, but fencing. Now, when he was called out on this hypocrisy during the primary, Castro, who was going all out to get as much media attention that he, as he could on every other occasion, which all, you know, which all candidates do, somehow he was unavailable for comment on this one. What a surprise. Now, we know what's going on. The truth is it probably served his purpose in 2013 to get on the good side of the Obama administration when he made his initial comments supporting their policy. But during the 2016 Democratic primary, it apparently served his purposes to shoot at the Obama policies he had previously endorsed. This is what I'm talking about when I talk about intellectual dishonesty when it comes to immigration. 
Now, some of you might say, hey, that's just how politics is. That's how campaigns go. This is a victimless crime. And I would beg to differ. Now, I'm certainly not going to put everything that's going on on our border on Castro. This is just an example, I think, a probative example, though, of how debates change and candidates rhetoric can pull the party to the right or to the left. And that can have serious consequences. Let me give you a quote from another Democrat uh, more recently. I think this was from uh, uh, 2019. I disagree with any policy that would turn America's back on people who are fleeing harm. I frankly believe that it is contrary to everything we have symbolically and actually said we stand for. And so I would not enforce a law that would reject people and turn them away without giving them a fair, a fair and due process, um, yeah, a fair and a due process to determine if we should give them asylum and refuge. This quote comes from your vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, in 2019 during an interview with NPR. And yet, Harris has been chosen to lead the Biden administration's effort at the border, and the Associated Press reports that the administration is relying on a contested Trump-era policy to reject thousands of Haitian refugees at the U.S.-Mexico border. They're doing this through a public health law known as Title 42, which allows them to quickly take Haitians into custody and fly them back home without providing any type of due process concerning asylum and refugee claims. Most of the Haitians removed from Del Rio have been removed under Title 42. Now, this has upset many human rights activists who were made to believe that such policies would end once Trump left office. Now, just so you know, Title 42 comes from the Public Health Service Act, and it gives health uh, health officials power to take extreme measures during a health crisis to limit the transmission of disease. Many immigration activists, though, criticize the use of Title 42 in the context of immigration. They're saying that this law wasn't really created in this. This is outside the spirit of the the, the law to use it for immigration in this way. In fact, former federal health officials said that the Trump administration overruled scientists who said that there was no evidence that invoking Title 24 would slow the spread of COVID. I wonder if those same officials are are saying something about the Biden administration right now. Again, the primary complaint here is that it it prevents migrants from claiming asylum and being able to remain in the U.S. It denies them due process. They're just kind of rushed out before they can even say why they came. Now, apparently, it looks like a federal judge agrees because last week, I believe it was a judge in Washington said the use of Title 42 under these circumstances is likely illegal. It's outside the spirit of the law. Now, the Biden administration, once this came out, immediately appealed that decision. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, Chris, Um, as all this stuff was going down, I I couldn't help. I'm just really angered by how the Biden administration has handled these 
Haitian immigrants. Um, I, I understand that the border is very complicated, so I don't expect some something that's going to be pretty and handled perfectly. But how Haitian immigrants are being treated right now is an atrocity. Not just in itself, but also even rel- relative to how other immigrants are being treated. We're seeing harsh physical treatment. I read stories where people are being dropped off back in Haiti who haven't been in Haiti in years and have nowhere in Haiti to go. But they're just summarily kind of being brought back there. No questions asked. We have a situation where this administration and when they were running for office, they demonized Trump and then turned around and employed some of his policies. In my opinion, this is bad faith all around. We're talking about Haitians here who experienced a 7.0 magnitude earthquake quake in 2010, which left, I believe, almost a million people homeless. Their president was assassinated in July. Then they experienced another 7.2 magnitude earthquake in August crushing what whatever infrastructure they even had left. I mean, the stories that you hear coming out of this place are very, very sad. And it comes down to this, in my opinion. The Biden administration made promises they couldn't keep during the campaign and hereafter. And now migrant encounters at the border are at a 21 year high. Migrant encounters climbed to almost 200,000 in July. And that was over what was just at 16,000 in April of 2020. The rhetoric and the promises of politicians matter. Although we somehow seem to think that it's play play when it comes to immigration during a campaign. It's not play play. It's real. And we need to treat it that way. Uh, What's your point of view on this, uh, Chris? Yeah, I think um, it's a very sort of tragic situation. A couple of things that uh, I think are really important to highlight, Justin, you you talked about it, um, but the the way in which one administration is being uh, treated in the context of this immigration issue compared to another administration when literally the only thing that is different is the party that is in power. I mean, we are enforcing not a similar policy. We are enforcing the exact same rule, the exact same policy um, at the border. And it has not been treated with the, with the sort of level of, of careful attention and critique uh, that it should be. And one has to ask the question, is that because of the person and the party uh, that is in power? Um, And if that's the case, then that's really troubling to me because you can't let people get away with hurting other people just because they happen to be of the right political persuasion. Um, If it was uh, wrong for the Trump administration uh, to summarily uh, banish people from our shores uh, under a special rule, uh, then it would be wrong for the Biden administration to do so. And for no, for, for not enough folks to be asking the questions, to be holding this up as uh, as severely as it should be held, I think is, is troubling. It says something um, 
it says something bad about our discourse, about our media, uh, and just about our ability to pay attention to these things on issues beyond our sort of partisan commitments. Uh, and, and, and that is not great. Uh, the other thing, though, here is when you step back and look at broader immigration policy, we have to get this uh, resolved. We can't just keep playing, you know, political football uh, with the immigration issue uh, because real stuff is happening in the real lives of people. Uh, I think the Haitian uh, immigrants that we are, are currently talking about uh, have even more of a, of, a, of a special situation. I mean, when we think about our immigration policies, it is not easy. Uh, it is it is hard. Uh, but this, again, the same benefit of the doubt that we give to this administration, I think, should have been uh, should be extended to any administration. Uh, but we got to get it sorted through because people are are hurting. And, and right now, our at least our thought, again, if we want to have a conversation nationally and say we're just going to change the way we look at immigration and we're going to take a very, very different approach uh, to immigration than we ever have in the history of the United States, um, then folks should come out publicly and say that and at least try to move this conversation forward. Now, that's not what I think we should do. Uh, I think we should be looking at uh, the responsibility that we have as a world leader um, to people's uh, in our hemisphere, uh, close to uh, our nation, particularly nations like Haiti, where if we're honest about the history of Haiti and the history of the United States, um, the United States is not uh, an, an impartial and uninvolved actor when it comes to the realities, uh, economic and social, uh, in the nation of Haiti. Uh, and I'm talking all the way back to like the Haitian uh, Revolution and Haitian independence and the role that the United States has played in Haiti um, from that time all the way through, uh, you know, meddling in the government uh, and and creating, if not creating, certainly contributing uh, to many of the issues. Now, the United States can't make an earthquake, an earthquake happen, right? But the, the, the sort of poverty and the, the difficulties in the economy and in the society there in Haiti, the United States has played a role. Uh, and so we should feel some compassion here. Uh, we should feel some responsibility here. Uh, and as believers, certainly the, uh, the text that we opened with from you, Justin, should compel us in a way uh, to feel some compassion, uh, to have some concern, to want to figure this out. Uh, and again, I'm not here to say that it is easy. Uh, it is certainly complex. But until we can have a reasoned and meaningful discussion about the issues, uh, we won't be able to move forward on this. And uh, and folks are going to be uh, getting hurt all along in the process. Uh, the, the last thing that I'll say is that uh, in, in some conversations, and I haven't seen polling or other commentary on this, but just very locally in, in my space, so this is super anecdotal, uh, but I do think that in these weeks, black people in the United States seeing black people being mistreated at the border, I think has heightened uh, the awareness of our community uh, of the need for real 
meaningful and comprehensive uh, immigration reform so that we really do have something that makes sense happening uh, at our borders. I think that that is happening and maybe there's an opportunity here to expand uh, the coalition of folks who are really working on this issue and and caring about it. Uh, So I hope that uh, that that is real, that it reaches further than my little world and the people that I talk to, and that it can contribute to uh, some forward progress on getting resolution on something I think is a very, very uh, important issue uh, in the United States. Yeah, I think you hit on something there. I mean, hopefully it would add to the push uh, for immigration reform. I, I would say generally that a lot of African-Americans aren't on the front lines of that push. But I will tell you something, Chris, and this is why I say you, you hit something on the head. I had folks I made a comment basically criticizing uh, a post criticizing the administration for for how they treated the Haitian immigrants. I had folks who never criticized anything Democrat liking that post in a way that I had never seen them do before, probably because of the faces that they saw being mistreated. Now, it shouldn't take let me say this as Christians. It shouldn't take you seeing people who look like you being hurt for you to get engaged and for you to really care. But the fact is. Those visuals are having an impact on especially folks in the black community that they hadn't had before, which is also worrisome for now. I hope it turns into some positive that that's the number one thing we want to happen. But it also signals something for the Biden administration, too. If you have people opening up to criticism where they should have been open anyway, but they're more active and willing to do that in a public way, it means you need to make a move. Uh, The other point that I think you made really well was that these are real people being hurt. So while we're playing politics and we're worried about, you know, politicians are worried about their future and what they're going to run for next and just staying in office. Thousands and thousands of people are being hurt when we could really be doing the work to get this done. We always talk about how the, you know, the gang of eight guys like Marco Rubio actually tried to stick their necks out there and get something done. And then turn around, you got guys like uh, Ted Cruz using it against them when they run when they run for a different office. That's what we have to get rid of, because because that's ridiculous. Um, And the other thing I would say, Chris, is stop letting people run for office and make promises they know they can't keep. When you go out there and you say something that, you know, good and well is not going to change and you're just trying to rile people up, you need to get called out immediately. Don't vote for people who make unrealistic promises like that. Right. And it's going to take, you know, it's going to take us saying something and calling it out for people to change. We have to remove those incentives because I'll agree. I totally disagreed with the way that Trump handled uh, uh, immigration. But guess what? The end campaign pointed that out. We took criticism from some folks for pointing that out. We do it again. But we would be hypocrites not to point it out now uh, what, what Biden is doing. And, and what they've let move forward, despite what they've claimed, despite setting these very high expectations that I, you know, I can't tell that they, you know, have the the courage to actually uh, put into place. Now, again, as we continue to analyze and critique this situation, it doesn't mean that we need to act like uh, immigration is just easy to fix. The administration is still in a situation where Congress hasn't done what they're supposed to do. Right. And they have they have made it hard for them to get done what they what they should be getting done. So this isn't something that just falls on the administration, but they certainly should have done better in the same way that uh, the Trump administration should should have done better. Now, let me say this. To be fair, the one thing that they did change 
Um, and there's a few things that changed, but one of the major things that they changed was you can't split up families at the border. So that is a major change. We do want to, we know, we do want to give them uh, some credit for that, but it's not enough. Uh, and, and more should be done, especially based on the rhetoric that we received. Now, let me say this uh, one last time. I know I, I mentioned it before, but um, uh, there's some folks, uh, our friend Rasul Berry, our folks at Bridge Church in, in Brooklyn, they are doing help for Haiti where they're raising money for churches in Haiti because churches in Haiti are, are, are pillars in many ways, just like here. So they're raising money for churches in, in Haiti so they, they can get through this moment. Again, that's help for Haiti. It's being run by the Bridge Church, some folks who are affiliated with the with the Ann campaign. And it's very similar to churches helping churches help for Haiti with Rasul Berry and the Bridge Church. Uh, support that if you can, man, because that's a really important effort. Uh, and we need to get some help down there and be uh, paying attention to our brothers and sisters. But I'll let Chris take us out. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, quickly, one, let me just uh, say, do support help for Haiti. Uh, I'm I'm going to be uh, moving our church to do that. And, and I, I encourage people, folks to do that. I also think for those who do turn to the Church Politics podcast for uh, some sort of resource, I do want to hold up uh, uh restitution-based immigration reform. Uh, Again, this is not a a simple uh, uh, issue to deal with, but look up restitution-based immigration reform. I think that it it does provide a very uh, thoughtful and a very uh, compassionate framework for for coming up with some, some meaningful immigration policy that can be consistent uh, compassionate uh, and um, and effective for 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 our sort of policy as the United States. So check that out, uh, learn about that, and and let's lean into this moment. I think is a very important issue uh, and one in which we can have some impact in this moment that folks are talking about it at, at a level of intensity. That's a word. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. And it's it's hard. You know, we talked about this issue a couple of times, but it's hard to avoid because so much is going on with it. And it continues to be one of the main issues going on, especially in D.C. And that's this infrastructure bill, along with uh, the budget reconciliation that, that people are tying together. 81-year-old Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, has represented her constituents uh, in California uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives since 1987. Um, as Tim O'Donnell mentions in his uh, Yahoo News article, she was key in pushing through Obamacare in 2010. She's been key in a lot of the successful Democrat initiatives since she's been in office. I mean, she gets the job done. But he believes that getting the infrastructure and reconciliation bills passed might be her most challenging task in her leadership role. And that is saying a lot. Now, those of you who listen to the show, not no, I'm not a huge fan of her politics on cultural or economic issues for that matter. And I don't think she's a really strong communicator when it comes talking to directly to the people. But it is very hard to argue against her ability to get Democrats to do what she wants them to do. I don't know anybody else in Congress that is as effective as Nancy Pelosi. 
partially is that because she's a huge fundraiser and she uses her ability to run a fundraise and also stop others from fundraising to kind of push and pull. And and these are kind of some of the things that go on when you're in Congress. But she does these things well. She knows the game and she always seems to have a big joker and some magic, uh, some tricks under her sleeve to get things done. And so there's somebody that can do it. And Chris may disagree, but if there's somebody that can do it uh, on the Democrat side, it is Nancy Pelosi because she goes hard in the paint when it comes to these issues. Now, the stakes are really high. Right. Uh, Some would even say that the success of Biden's presidency may, to some extent, ride on her ability to rally uh, the troops and rally what really is, Chris, a very divided caucus. Uh, I don't know that we've seen the uh, Democratic caucus this divided in some time. Now, this article says that Pelosi is dealing with the narrowest majority that she's ever had, uh, giving her so very little room to maneuver on such significant legislation. And and what they mean by that is just three congressmen on her side could derail what it, what would be the biggest bill ever to pass Congress. That's a huge job. I mean, she's already got to get, you know, over 200 people together and just three of three democratic Congress people saying, I'm not going to go with it could ruin everything. This major bill with so much riding on it. It's very interesting, man. So so part of the dynamic that she's dealing with is to her left, she has progressives, a lot of socialist Democrats and others saying that they won't vote on the infrastructure bill without a robust reconciliation bill. So we need to know, have guarantee that this reconciliation bill is a go or having voted on that already or at the same time before we vote for infrastructure. I've already said I think that's playing with fire, but they've been holding up so far. On the other side, she has moderate Democrats uh, who are pushing uh, back on this reconciliation proposal. They say, hey, let's just do the infrastructure. Yeah, we can get to the reconciliation, but that's not really our priority. And if we do get to it, some things need to be stripped out. Uh, Some of these moderate Democrats think the number is just too high. And I've heard a lot of commentary saying one of the Biden administration's biggest mistakes was making this about numbers, right? How much it would actually cost rather than the actual project and what was being done. I don't I think in my opinion, I think it's almost too late to reverse that. But that's where uh, folks are at. Other um, moderate Democrats just don't like some of the environmental provisions. I've said this before. Certainly, we need to do some some things when it comes to climate change and we need to be paying uh, serious attention to that. But I do believe that progressives threw way too much stuff in there and that they lost credibility. Some people would say that, hey, you always want to start a negotiation kind of throwing a lot in there. I say, yeah, I kind of get that. But at the same time, the more you throw in there, if it's too much, you just lose credibility. Right. So if you're you're selling me your 1982 Honda Civic and you say, hey, I want two million dollars for it. I'm going to say, yeah, no, I'm not even going to start negotiating from that point. Right. And so you can kind of actually lose credibility with just throwing a whole bunch of stuff in there. And I think to me that was a mistake on the progressive side. But the other problem that she has, Chris, is that this just isn't just dependent on what goes on in the House. Right. You still have uh, a couple of folks, namely Senator uh, Cinema for Arizona and Senator Manchin, who are moderate Democrats. Uh, and Manton is from West Virginia, who don't like the you know don't like a lot of the stuff that would be in this reconciliation bill. Uh, Manchin has said, you know what, let's just wait to vote on that reconciliation bill until until uh, 2022. 
Cinema has said that she's not going to accept any hikes in taxes at all to pay for this. So not only does Pelosi have to get her people together, she has to try to put something together that those folks would accept because some of the moderates are saying that I'm not going to vote for it if I if I don't know that Cinema and Manchin have already approved it because it would actually just be a waste. Then it's not it doesn't even end there though because Cinema and Manchin want different things, right? Cinema is saying that she actually does want a lot of the provisions when it comes to climate change and environmentalism. Manchin is saying those are some of the that's some of the stuff that they have to tamp down on and not put that in there. So this is a very serious situation. If she can pull it off, it will be masterful, but it's going to take a very serious effort because this is a really tough uh, road to go, especially when you're talking about so much money. It's so important. And you have hardly anybody on the Republican side that's going to be supportive of, of this, even though many of them know. How bad we need infrastructure, how how bad our roads are, how bad our bridges are, because, you know, some of these other things have been added. There's most of them are saying they're not going to vote for it at all. And so the Democrats are left to try to figure this out and try to keep a coalition that's splintering together. Chris, what are your thoughts, man? Yeah. So I think we have a situation where the the sort of entire political establishment is misinterpreting uh, the moment. And, and that's why it's so very difficult to, uh, to get any kind of coalition together. Uh, when we go outside of Washington, D.C., like into the, the rest of the United States, into the world, you have a situation. One, I'll say this, the, the, the number one thing to make somebody politically or economically progressive is to be poor or downwardly mobile. Uh, when you're poor, when you're downwardly mobile, uh, you like economic policies that are going to rebalance the economy and give you, your family, your children and grandchildren, a better shot uh, at building the kind of life that you imagine for yourself and for your children. Uh, this is happening all over uh, the, the United States. A lot of the folks, though, who are poor and are downwardly mobile um, are more culturally conservative than most of the folks who are very wealthy and very upwardly mobile, what this is doing is is it's tearing this sort of left right consensus apart and, and establishing more of a up down uh, sort of a situation in our politics. And so when the, all of the folks who are fighting for economic progressivism uh, are also, you know, sort of cultural progressives, it makes it very difficult to build coalition uh, that can actually get some of these types of things done. And so you end up uh, trying to vest all of your um, your capital, you know, the, the, the folks who are going to stand up for economic progressivism literally don't speak the language of poor people, right? And then all the folks who have, you know, at least some kind of identification culturally, uh, or at least we should say many of the folks, I shouldn't say all of anybody, but many of the folks who, who identify in some way culturally, uh, and, and even there, it's mostly because of partisanship, uh, but have that kind of identification, will not stand up for the economic needs uh, of the people. And so you have this, 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 this strange thing where Nancy Pelosi from California is fighting for the economic interests of the people in West Virginia. And, you know, a Joe Manchin is standing against it 
And it just gets all weird and jumbled up. And I think that the the greatest lesson that's going to come out of this, uh, because if I had to predict it, Justin, I think either nothing gets done or something so small that is not sufficient for the moment gets done. And I think the lesson that we'll come away with is that it's time to really start rethinking our politics because it would be something if you had a few folks in national politics who could go to West Virginia, who could go to Southern Illinois, where I am, who could go to Georgia uh, and talk about economic progressivism without offending the cultural sensibilities of, you know, large segments of the population. So, yeah, let me agree with you in that. I think these political labels are outworn. Um, I, I think, you know, there's been some type of realignment, some some major changes where to say someone's a progressive or conservative and those be the two lines. Just do, it just doesn't really um, give justice to, wh- to where people are at right now. So, so I'll give you that. Um, I would say this, though, when it comes to Joe Manchin, I think a lot of Democrats and progressives need to understand that if Joe Manchin, the Democrat, is not the West, West Virginia's senator, one of the, their senators, then it's going to be a Republican. So, the, I, you know, I think Democrats do go a little too far to say he's not representing his people. Well, they will just vote for somebody who's a Republican otherwise, because maybe they have no you know, different values than people assume that they have. Maybe their number one thing isn't the economic issues, even though I mean, there's instances where economics would help some people. That's not their number one thing. That's not the, that's not what people put first sometimes. So I, so I, I would push back a little about that, a, bit, a little bit on that. The other thing I would say is that with Senator Sinema, uh, certainly the title of moderate probably doesn't fit. Sinema is one of these people who is pretty much the opposite of, of me. We're both Democrats, but we're, we're pretty much opposite. She's going to be more progressive and leftward on social issues and more conservative to where I don't even think you can call her moderate when it comes to uh, economic issues. Right. So one of the things that she just did was she said she was going to support this uh, deal that they were trying to make with prescription drugs to get those prices down. Well, now she's not going to support it. And she just, by the way, got some support from Big Pharma and all this other stuff. Uh, to fit with that. So Sinema is not somebody that I really connect with that as a Democrat. She doesn't really fit what I would call a moderate um, because she's completely on the other side. So, so those categories don't even work. She's, she has some very interesting politics uh, and, and we need to kind of keep an eye, eye on that. The other thing I would point out is, and again, this is where we somewhat disagreed was if the infrastructure bill by itself gets passed, I see that as significant. Is it everything I wanted? Uh, could there have been more? Do I fault, you know, the administration and others for for their strategy on how they got this through? Because personally, I think they once they got the, the last big piece of legislation through, this should have been very quickly pushed, you know, pushed through as fast as they could and not made about the number, but made so, so uh, more so about the project. If that doesn't happen, will I be somewhat disappointed? Sure. But I can't ignore the needs of this backlog of infrastructure just because we don't get everything we want. And again, if progressives decide not to pass this because they didn't get their reconciliation, uh, I think they're making a huge mistake that they could pay for for a lot longer than they think they will. Yeah, I mean, I I will uh, say that I I definitely think infrastructure, were it to get passed, would uh, would be significant. I think we agree on that. 
Um, and, we, and we probably agree on, on the point that it, it would not be sufficient uh, and it would not be the best that we could do. And the reason I don't know how uh, Pelosi gets this done, and it's not just Pelosi, right? Then Schumer's got to get it done uh, over on the Senate side. And ultimately, the president uh, and his administration is going to wear the jacket for this. But I don't see how it gets done because it all sets up wrong. Um, you know, there should be more, you know, uh, I, I think there's a way to get more people at the table here. I think there was a way to have more of a national conversation and not make it so much inside baseball with, uh, you know, the parliamentarian and reconciliation and bipartisan and all this stuff. Um, I just think the whole thing set up wrong. And that ultimately, I think as, as people are talking about it right now, a lot of the commentary is about, you know, the speaker's ability to whip votes and um, mansion and cinema and all this stuff. And I think that's, it just all sets up wrong. Uh, I would much rather have seen uh, a much different sort of approach to this, make this more of a, um, of a national project that people actually got engaged with because uh, people see the need for infrastructure. I mean, we were talking about this a few podcasts ago, uh, you know, the, the storm that literally ripped through the, the Eastern part of the United States from the South all the way to the North. Um, we see our needs for infrastructure. People see their needs in their families. And as you so rightly pointed out, something that a lot of folks who I agree with on a lot of economic policy fail to understand is that for a lot of folks, when it comes to sort of values and culture, that stuff runs deep and sometimes is not even trumped by economic interest. When, when, when we've allowed our minds to just tell us, tell us that economics is everything, uh, that's how we get off into this sort of politics that can just completely ignore and reject uh, people's values and culture. Uh, and sort of just run folks out of your party and out of your coalition because they disagree with you on those things. When really there are ways to to just not be like offensive on stuff and keep those people inside of your coalition. Uh, so I, I think that my my bigger point is is not so much that that we should see one of these packages go down because I I do think that if if nothing happens, it's going to be uh, it's gonna be really bad for uh, for progressives. It's gonna be bad for the current, you know, so-called moderates. I think it's ultimately gonna be really bad for the Democratic Party, uh, and you know, maybe even bad for for folks in the Republican Party. It's not going to be good politically, and it's gonna be horrible for the country, right? Because then we don't get to fix infrastructure. We don't make investments in families. We just don't do anything. Uh, and I think my assessment of it all is that the reason it has gotten to the point where it is, where it is very much hanging in the balance, is that it just all set up wrong from the beginning. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And I, I think my biggest thing, and here's that's one of my biggest disagreements with even a lot of my Christian friends who are democratic socialists, is it's just too materialistic. Um, economics are very important and you can't ignore economics and, you know, what they can do uh, for people and help people out. 
but they're not everything. They're not this positive by themselves. Families and communities and how we what we do to keep them together matters, too, because you can give people people can have money and still not be thriving. Right. People can have a little more and still not be thriving. And I think sometimes we, we miss that within the Democratic of people in the Democratic Socialist side of it, miss the understanding of that. And, and another point you made. Pelosi and Schumer are going to have to do this together, right? Because if Pelosi moves forward and she doesn't have Manchin and Cinema signing off, which I don't even know how she gets Cinema to sign off based on some of the stuff Cinema's saying. Cinema, I don't, we might have to have a whole episode on her, but um, they're going to have to do this together. She's going to have to make sure the Senate's in line to push this forward. It's not going to happen today. Initially, it wasn't today or today is Monday. We're recording on Monday, but I think this was initially the deadline and that's, you know, that that's not going to go down today. It doesn't look like so something to keep our eye on is going to have an impact on people. It's going to have an impact on families, going to have an impact on safety. And we need to be paying attention. So keep your eye on this reconciliation and uh, infrastructure bill. We may be talking about it again before this is all said and done, but we will see. We'll be back in a second. Are you too progressive for conservatives? and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. I'm Justin Gibney, and I'm speaking with the right reverend, Christopher Butler, who hails from Chicago land. All right. Um, this was a controversy uh, for a lot of folks, especially on social media uh, in the church, uh, especially among white evangelicals and a lot of people in those spaces. Josh McDowell is a well-known white evangelical apologist. Uh, he's led and we're, we're going to give him his credit. He's led countless believers to Christ, uh, helped clarify a lot of theological issues for people and I'll be honest, I've learned a lot from his work. I even got a chance to do an event with him uh, probably a couple of years ago for for one race. Um, had no issues. He actually said some things that 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 were enlightening about the race issue. But unfortunately, an audio recording surfaced where he was basically saying that black people don't have equal opportunity because their households don't value education, hard work and aren't secure. Now, <laughs> um, well, let me start by saying this. I appreciate him acknowledging the lack of equal opportunity. I think that is important. I think that's a step forward. I wish more white evangelicals would uh, uh, recognize that disparity. But I thoroughly reject his premise. Um, 
there are some very serious disparities and opportunities in America. But to blame that on black values is to take the conversation completely out of historical context and it's to completely misunderstand the values of a lot of black Americans. Now, as my dear friend, Dr. Charlie Dates once said, it is a miracle that the black family even exists in America. So not to talk about, you know, our status and things that are going on with black people and recognize that through slavery, through mass incarceration and all these other things, through uh, welfare policy and all these other things, the black family was basically ripped apart on more than one occasion. You've got to acknowledge that or your ex- assessment is flawed. Uh, I think it was a really ignorant and regrettable statement. And a statement like that can't be ignored when it's coming from a leader with so much influence, who speaks to so many people and who's respected in so many circles that need to have a better understanding of race and race relations and the history of race. Um, and I do want to note that after he made this statement, after it became public, most of this stuff happened last week, that he did apologize, um, that he made, what, which I have no reason to believe was not a, a heartfelt apology. Now, this goes into another issue, which I don't know a whole lot about and won't get too far into. I don't know all or even half of the stuff that's going on behind the scenes with crew um, and its affiliates, uh, which is a uh, a, a ministry for for college kids. Uh, We've done the and campaign has done some work with them. And I especially appreciated the lenses Institute and just crew in in general have been friends of the and campaign. I have no reason to pull any of that support back. Uh, And let me say this. I, I totally agree with people who are saying that McDowell was wrong. I hope I've made that clear. Period. Right. Clean stop. I also agree with the decision made by crew and I guess McDowell himself that he needs to step back from ministry to to think some of these things through. But here's the other thing I want to say, because the campaign, we don't we don't want to just, you know, uh, say, you know, uh, just, you know, just go along with what the trend and what people are saying. We're not going to go against it. Uh, you know, to, just to prove a point. But I think there's some points that need to be made that aren't being made in the general conversation. Maybe that's the best way to put it. I want us to be careful. Those of us who recognize what McDowell did wrong. I want us to be careful about the spirit with which we're approaching this issue. Be careful not to approach this issue like some kind of ambulance chaser. Who, who's thirsting to point out wrong, who, who's eager to pile on, who, who, who's eager to say, I told you so, they're all like this. And who's eager to enlarge our platforms based on other people's failures. This should be heartbreaking. Everybody who's heard this or, or heard of uh, McDowell before this happened should be heartbroken. And we should want to see restoration and healing. And I'm not getting that from some of the responses. It seems like some of us like to see or almost we joy in this and we like to see this because it furthers our narrative. Again, I told you so. It's just a matter of time before they're all exposed. I would just like to say that's not of God. Again, we should be heartbroken. We should be prayerful. 
And we should ultimately want to see him restored through a change of heart. And honestly, I don't think this negates the rest of his work, the good works that he's he's done. I don't think that now people shouldn't be able to learn from the things that he's done, learn from his apologetics, benefit from his apologetics. If we're going to say that this kind of taints everything else, I think that's wrong. And I think it's somewhat hypocritical because all of us probably have something that people would look at and say this taints us. The man apologized. We need to give him opportunities to show that that apology was sincere, that it was really meant, that he really meant it. And I would just ask you this, Chris, or just ask the audience this. Is our goal to see our Christian brothers and sisters humiliated or to see them corrected and restored? Again, he should be given opportunities to demonstrate that he was sincerely grieved and apologetic. McDowell has done a lot of good work that he that will continue to help believers. It should not be discounted by this statement. But at the same time, that statement and the perspective behind it cannot be ignored. So I think there's two errors here. There's the error of ignoring what he said, ignoring the impact that it could have, that that perspective has, that ignoring the history and how that affects people and how it affects how people look at themselves. Because there's some black people that listen to McDowell that may not have a strong foundation in their community and people telling them that they're better. That that that's a reflection on them and how they feel about themselves. So I think that's one of the error. The other error is this ambulance chaser, run to the scene of the crime, make our comments, have no intention on seeing redemption, just wanting to say, I told you so, and moving along to the next issue. That's not Christ-like, and I think we can do better. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think on this, we're we're sort of saying this exactly the same way, and I would just uh, hasten to say that this is not, I mean, I guess it is the end campaign framework, but the end campaign framework is not where this generates. This is biblical, right? Like if if we take the first error, as you pointed out, um, we ignore Paul's exhortations in First Corinthians, right? Like you cannot not confront this statement. Uh, you cannot just go past it as if, uh, it doesn't harm people as if it doesn't misinform a lot of folks who are really out there in, in, in this moment in time, really earnestly trying to figure this stuff out on, uh, on race. And, and so when teachers stand up and say stuff like this on these huge platforms, it would be wrong to not confront it. Um, it was, it was a, a horrible, regrettable thing to say, uh, and it should be pointed out as such. Anybody who chooses to not do that uh, is doing no service to the discourse and certainly no service to the kingdom of God. Uh, but if we choose the second error, then we are ignoring uh, Paul's exhortations to the Corinthians in the second letter to the Corinthians, where he essentially tells them, uh, you opposed the sinning man, uh, and that was good and, and right, but the punishment has been enough, uh, and now it is time to restore the sinning man, and And I love what Paul says, and reaffirm your love for him. And if our goal in opposing uh, the statement and confronting uh, McDowell and pointing out the 
the error of this statement, if our goal in that is just to humiliate um, and just to score points and just to get, you know, likes and and retweets and all that stuff, uh, then we are in so so much sin. I mean, I, I don't think you can call it anything else uh, when we do that. Uh, if, if our heart here is not to call out the sin so that so that this sort of thinking, the kind of thinking that was put forth in the statement, we had to call it out because that can get into the body. Uh, it can become this, uh, this sort of insidious thing. It reaffirms people in bad thinking and maybe even points people uh, into a direction of bad thinking. Uh, and so we don't want that in the body. That is why we call it out. Uh, but our goal is not to get Josh McDowell out of the body uh, or to discredit him and all of the things that he has ever done, will ever do. Uh, that's not the goal, right? We should be getting what is bad out of the body, keeping what is good, including our beloved brother. So if you are confronting this, with, I think that you're doing the right thing, but you got to have an eye toward when does that moment come? And it shouldn't be too long uh, when that moment comes, when we say collectively uh, what Paul says to the Corinthians, the, the punishment is enough. Uh, now it's time to restore the sinning man and reaffirm my love uh, for him. So that is, I think, the, the only way to do it. And I, and I think the church really has an opportunity to lead here because we do have a crisis right now of what it means to be wrong, like in the world, in the United States, right? Like you can, it's like if, if you are ever wrong one time, then you can just be done right forever and that should not be what it means to be wrong right think about what that does over time uh, especially for those of us who like raise children disciple people like a huge part of that is actual correction and um direction when mistakes are made and and when things are willfully done wrong you correct you teach you point folks in a better direction and it's getting to the place where where that's not possible because once you're wrong you do something wrong then you just toss this out yeah and let me say this if you're maliciously condemning this man if you're approaching this with an ugly nasty spirit then you're just as wrong as he is, if not worse. And that's real. Your intentions, your motivations, your objectives, the spirit by which you address this matters. If the spirit by which you address this is not in love, is not trying to seek restoration, then you're wrong. Do you love him or do you just want to prove a point because you're hurt? And there's some people and it's OK to be hurt. It's some people who so hurt that they're not in a position to be in a to, to lead others in this conversation. And we have a problem within Christianity right now, because especially when it comes to white evangelicals who need to be correct in a lot of ways. But some of the people that are headhunting out there are using their hurt and leading other people astray because they're hurt and not mature enough or not in the situation where they should be leading others within this conversation. And we love you, but that's wrong. So I'll just say this from the and campaign. The and campaign wants Josh McDowell to be corrected. We're not going to ignore this, but we also love him 
and want to see him restored. I want to see him preaching in front of crowds again once he gets to where he needs to be on this. That's how a Christian responds in our understanding of it. All right, guys, let's do this better, man. We can't return evil for evil. We can't we can't return wrong for wrong. There's a better way to do it. And hopefully we can all get there. And please stop retweeting. Stop going along with these malicious attacks. It's not one or the other. It's not completely just go all in or somebody or ignore them. There's a better way. And I think the gospel shows us that way. This was uh, quite an episode, guys. Uh, Thanks again for all the support. If you want to support us, if you like what we do, like the content that we put out, just know that it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of resources. If you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash church politics, or you can go to the Ann Campaign's website, annecampaign.org, and and give to support this ministry. We need y'all to get in the game, not just to listen. And there's a lot of ways to get in, even if you just give $5 a month. We appreciate it. We love you. And we need you to join this movement. Thanks again for all that you do. And as usual, Ann Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Well, I'll let you. Take care. I say kingdom